Hi there, Pastor Austin Vondracek here. Thank you for joining us at Rosewood Church Online. My prayer for you is that this message will be used by God to bless, teach, and challenge you today. And whether you call Rosewood home and are catching up on a past message, or you're one of our many long-distance partners who tune in every week, would you consider giving back to support the ministries and missions of Rosewood Church? You can do so easily through our website, rosewoodchurch.org. And if you're listening and you're local to the West Michigan area, we would love to have you in person when the time is right for you. Again, I pray this blesses you and helps you grow in your love of Jesus Christ. Good morning. My name is Austin Vondracek. I'm one of the pastors here at Rosewood. And to everyone joining us online who's wondering where part of the service went, uh, we had a streaker and we had to cut the service. Just so he's gone. Security took uh, took care of him. Actually, it was a husband and wife. And. Uh, we can tell whatever story we want. Uh, no, thank you to, gosh, thank you to the technology people around here when that happens and they go scrambling and make that happen. Thank you so much uh, to those who have that knowledge uh, for getting us back. Yeah, yeah. For, for keeping the lights on. So uh, now for our online audience, just, just real quick, uh, in the description of this video or this podcast, however you're listening, uh, there's a link to a survey. It'll take you less than a minute. Uh, you'd have it done by now if you started when I got up here. And uh, it just tells us a little bit about who you are. You don't even have to tell us your name or, or anything. Uh, we're just trying to kind of understand kind of what's going on here, which is that we've got uh, a far larger audience every week uh, online than we actually do in person. And so as we uh, try to be wise uh, with wise stewards of our resources and our discipleship energies, we're just trying to understand um, that group as a, as a whole. So uh, please fill that out. Uh, it means a lot to us and it doesn't cost you a thing. So uh, please do that sometime soon. In fact, do it right now. Um, all right. So, uh, as we get into it today, if you want to follow along in, in your Bibles, you may. Uh, Luke 7 is where we're going to be reading from today as we continue kind of marching our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to get into, the, the first half of the message is going to have quite a bit of uh, kind of background and, and context and such, which I know for some people they really kind of geek out on, other people it's like, you know, move along. Uh, we will, but we've kind of got to go through this because the story that we're reading today, just like any story in scripture, is something that took place uh, at a specific point in history at a specific place. And it's not now and it's not here. And that affects how we can bring a story like this back into the 21st century and understand how it applies to each of us. And so we're, we're going to spend a little bit of time there, a little more time than, than usual. So just kind of a heads up, that's where we're going. But again, I think we have to do it uh, today. Now, before we get into that, just it's, before we get into the past, let's think about the present. Um, as I was thinking about this message, uh, the, probably one of the, from, from my viewpoint, probably one of the greatest invisible cultural forces uh, today is this, gr is this, this, this pull to bring us into homogenous communities as best as possible. To try to, to try to find groups, find circles of people in which you will have complete and total agreement with. You circle the wagons, basically, around specific ideas or, or, or uh, values. And, and, um, 
And, and while there is some value to this, and it's impossible to entirely get a, away from it, uh, basically we kind of circle the wagons, and if there's ever a defector, then we either kick them out or we, we find a new circle to belong to that more looks exactly like we look or feels exactly like we feel or things like, like we think. And this is something that happens uh, throughout. It seems like kind of a Western culture thing, especially right now, and it affects all of communities. It affects uh, uh, politics. It affects schools. It affects churches. Uh, churches are under this same pressure and, and sometimes go the way of, of this pressure. We, we see it. I, I've seen it in churches. You don't even have to look far. Churches that have, are struggling and falling apart just because this pull for homogeny is tearing apart communities and, and and uh, uh, here's the thing, here's, here's why it really kind of worries me, is that if we continue on this trend and we play it out uh, as far as it can possibly go, uh, and, it, and, it, and we don't let it slow down or change course in any way, what we're going to end up with is as many communities as we have individuals. Because you and I and everyone here, there are just, there's an unlimited number of, of uh, combinations of values and characteristics and beliefs and thoughts and all of that. And so if we have to agree on everything, uh, our sense of community is, is ruined. I'm talking about about Rosewood, I'm talking about any church community. If, if everyone has to agree, I'm talking about the wider community as a whole. It will be eventually lead to the end of community if we cannot understand how to get along with one another, to be kind to one another, to understand another person's point of view even if we don't agree. In this story from uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 7, we're going to see a bit of a showdown between some uh, uh, rival ideals. Now, uh, in that time, as today, there were some you know, different groups of, of people. And if, and if Scripture is your only viewpoint, which for a lot of us it is, a viewpoint into that time in history, there is uh, one uh, uh, showdown, you could say, or, or divide, cultural divide that we see more than any other, which is the divide between Jews and Gentiles. Now, just so that we're kind of clear on what we're talking about here in this message, uh, Jews refer to those who are born into uh, the Jewish uh, culture and religion. Uh, Gentiles are simply those who are not. Now, a Gentile could become a Christian, or, or excuse me, a, a, a Jew. A, a Gentile could become a Jew, but they would never be a, a cultural Jew. Just like how, like, I'm Czech, and now I'm in the RCA, uh, but that doesn't make me Dutch. So, like, I'll never be much, no matter what. It's the same as then. It's the same as then. Where, where even a Gentile who becomes Jewish is still uh, not going to find themselves at the same kind of level as those who, were, who are, are naturally born uh, Jewish during that time. And, uh, and much like today, um, the the division between Jews and Gentiles was fluid. In some regions, uh, it was like oil and water. Uh, for other regions, people were more accepting, and, and there was just you know people coexisted uh, quite a bit easier. Now we're going to read a story today uh, where we find this showdown. Specifically, it's between a Roman uh, pagan Gentile centurion, or at least at one time was pagan, uh, centurion, and uh, a group of Jews. And in the middle, we will find Jesus, who's not 
put there by someone else, but willingly places himself there and leverages this social tension in order to teach about uh, his kingdom that is coming. And so uh, we're going to go through kind of chunk by chunk here. And uh, starting in Luke 7, verse 1, it says that uh, Jesus entered Capernaum, and there a centurion's servant, uh, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Uh, When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. All right. I know I just said that uh, there was tension between Jews and Gentiles in many regions here. And then we just read a story where uh, Jews are, are advocating on behalf of this centurion, this Roman centurion, to Jesus. Now, let's just kind of make some quick sense of that because it actually tells us quite a bit. For one, it tells us that this region, likely, uh, that tension was not, was not so high. Now, Jesus, though, is a a foreigner to that, well, not foreigner, but, but he, he, he's not from Capernaum. Uh, so he's not a local. That's what I'm looking for. He's not a local, so the centurion doesn't really know Jesus personally, which goes to kind of show or reinforce that, that there was this tension because the, the centurion reaches out to those Jews that he knows well, that apparently he's friendly enough with, uh, to go to Jesus because he's not sure how Jesus might respond to his request. See, in that time, the centurion was not just an outsider. Uh, He represented Jewish oppression because at this point in time, at this point in history, Rome had taken over much of the Mediterranean region that, that we know today. And this centurion was basically there to enforce peace, if that can you know, be such a thing. He's there to enforce peace uh, within what used to be or what is today modern Israel, uh, but back then was just a part of the Roman Empire. So the centurion sends Jews who will vouch for him. Otherwise, Jesus may just say no flat out because of who the centurion is. But something that's additionally kind of odd about this story that makes it noteworthy is uh, who the centurion is, is trying to get help for. Uh, it's his servant. Now, Roman code, uh, according to Roman code, this servant, what what the centurion should do, actually, is have the servant killed. Not just to, like, put him out of his misery. It's not that. It's that the weakest link, uh, you're you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so if something were to happen where the centurion or or his, you know, unit of men needed to act, uh, this servant was a liability. It might slow them up. And so it was reasonable and culturally accepted that this servant, if he couldn't kind of snap back to it right away, may very well be killed. And also just the fact that he's a servant. And so he can be replaced relatively easily. The value of human life is different than it is now. And yet instead, this centurion kind of crosses the tracks, so to speak, and goes to Jesus and asks for help. So certainly Luke is setting him up to be a pretty unique centurion. Um, Let's keep going with the story. Uh, He was not far, that is Jesus, was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Uh, 
that is why I did not go, that, that is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell this one to come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then Jewish, and then Jesus heard this, and he was, say it with me, amazed at him. In the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament, it accounts 28 times when people were amazed by Jesus or the work of the Holy Spirit. But only twice is Jesus left amazed. One time is in Mark 6, 6, where Jesus is amazed by the lack of faith of those people who uh, are in his hometown. And the other time is here with a centurion. So what's so amazing about the centurion's faith? Well, we already talked about his servant and kind of the power dynamic between the centurion and his servant. And that certainly shows that he's uh, compassionate in some way, but it doesn't necessarily demonstrate his faith. Uh, So first, let's look at the way that the centurion talks about himself. He talks in kind of an interesting way. It kind of leaves you, if you've read the story for the first time, you're not really sure where it's going to go because he kind of like puffs out his chest, right? And he's like... I can make people do things for me. I tell them to do this, they don't question. Jump, how high? You know, that's kind of the, how he operates. And he understands authority. He has the ability to basically make anyone who's, who's not his superior do whatever he wants. Uh, for instance, you might recall from, uh, uh, from the Gospel of, of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus talks about how, um, it's kind of like Jesus' greatest hits. If you don't know a lot about Jesus, that's a fantastic place to, to start. And uh, but, but Jesus says, if someone asks you to carry their armor for a mile, carry it too. Well, that's kind of a reference to what a centurion might do to you. He might just be like, you're going to carry my armor for a mile. Yeah, you. And, uh, and you're going to carry it for a mile. And it doesn't matter where you're going. You're carrying his, his armor for a mile. And, you know, Jesus says, carry it too. But anyway, that kind of gives us a glimpse into the kind of authority that the centurion uh, would have had in that day. And when it comes to the ranking system, Roman centurion beats Jewish rabbi every day of the week. And so, uh, anyway, he, it's kind of interesting the way that he, he speaks about himself. But then... Uh, Look at how he speaks about Jesus. Despite that power system that was at play there, that kind of those accepted dynamics, that the centurion submits to Jesus. He says he doesn't deserve to have Jesus come into his home. Now, this is a significant deviation from the social hierarchy that at that time, this kind of cultural norm or accepted cultural norm that you just don't really push against uh, during that time. In fact, think about this just as kind of a, to kind of put it in perspective. Um, The amount of authority that Jesus ascribes, or excuse me, that the centurion ascribes to Jesus within the centurion's lifetime would be enough to have the centurion killed in his own arena. So he gives him a great deal of respect, even demonstrating submission to Jesus. And this centurion Gentile crossed national, ethnic, and cultural lines into enemy territory on behalf of a servant of all people to receive help, which he could have received medical help from about anyone, but he seeks out this Jewish teacher that he recognizes has power that is beyond 
natural in some way. So yes, what's so amazing about the centurion's faith? It is pretty amazing. But if you don't believe me yet, uh, we're going to keep reading the story because he's going to turn from just speaking to the centurion. He's going to start to speak to the Jews who are in his audience. And, and basically what you're gonna what you're gonna hear is that if he dropped the mic when he said those things about the centurion, which would have been mind-boggling that that um, the centurion speaks to him in such a way and he goes to him, what Jesus is about to do is he's about to pick the mic up that he dropped and he's about to chuck it at the people who are his fans basically. He says when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So now he turns from speaking to this Gentile centurion, and now he's speaking to the Israelites. These are God's chosen people, and they knew it. For the people of Israel, they believed that they were special. They believed that they were over all people because, simply because they were descendants of Abraham. And consequently, they were a shoo-in to God's favor. They were a shoo-in by birth. They were born into the favor of the Lord. They were born into being uh, to being one of God's own. And here's kind of the, the thought process that went about, because we don't often think like this anymore. Uh, thank you to the, uh, to the power outage that messed up my slides, but it's all good. It's all good. Uh, uh, God promised to be the God of Abraham's nation, and his nation, according to Scripture, would be from his descendants. And so these folks would say, well... We are his descendants, which ultimately means that God is their, their God by birthright. That's how this kind of comes about. And in other words, they've fallen into what we're going to call today spiritual entitlement. All right? For the spiritually entitled, right standing with God becomes just a given. It's not second-guessed. It's not questioned. It's not reevaluated. It's not thought through. It's just there. And spiritual entitlement leads us to acting in a certain way. It leads us to acting like bouncers, okay? Now, if you're not, like, out clubbing that often anymore, um, let me just tell you a little bit about what a bouncer is, okay? So a bouncer is that big, tough guy, right, who's outside the club, you know, and he decides whether you're, I mean, he's checking IDs, but he's also like, you know, are you hot enough? If you're hot enough, you can come in. If you're not, you stay out, right? So the bouncer, so so think about this. The bouncer stands outside of an establishment that is not his own and decides who gets in and who gets out. Spiritually entitled people will think that life with God is basically their club. And they will see it as their responsibility to decide who gets in and who stays out according to standards and priorities established by themselves. John the Baptist was the um, predecessor of Jesus, who was announcing the Messiah's arrival. And, and, And like the message of the prophets that came before John, he basically was there to try to shake awake the people of God, to try to wipe the sand out of their eyes and wake them up to the, to, the, to the arrogance and the laziness that had come with their spiritual entitlement. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, And do not think you, you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. You've said this in the past. 
it doesn't work anymore. He says, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, God is coming just like he had always promised and just like the Jews had been waiting for for so long. But when he comes, he will not have any use for people who say that they're in, who say that they're, they're, they're this, while not producing any fruit, while, not, while, while doing nothing about it. In Christ, we see the inclusion of the people of God expanding wider and wider. This ancestral heritage that so many had clung to as the, the root of their faith is basically old news now. And, and instead of being on the side of God and his judgment, the table's being turned. The, is, the, the Israelites, they, the Jews, they always believed that God would bring his judgment upon the enemies of God. And they were right. But never in their mind, never through their spiritually entitled mind, many of them, anyway, I, I, sorry, I shouldn't like group all Jew, you know, ancient Jews into that. But you get my point here. That, that for those who were spiritually entitled, that, that it never occurred to them that the enemies of God could in fact be themselves could be the insiders, not just the outsiders. So their entitlement had run out. The prophets warned that this would happen. John the Baptist said it had begun. And now Jesus just looked a centurion in the eye and said, you are a man, well, you are a man of amazing faith. I guess he wasn't there. But he passed it along and he communicates to those around him that the centurion, the Gentile, is a man of amazing faith. So before we could bring this story into our present age, we kind of had to understand these character, characters in the situation that they, that they were. Um, now today, you know, some of these characters don't exist. For instance, chances are I'm, I'm probably not speaking to anyone who's Jewish. If I am, I'm only off by a little. Um, I also know that none of you are centurions. I'm quite positive of that one. Um, which means that the two characters represented in this dynamic that, that we see so often in Scripture just don't, the, the, these characters don't exist. Um, now, I will say if you visit modern Israel, you will find people that call you Gentiles. You will call you a Gentile. I remember the first time I was called a Gentile. I was kind of insulted, right? But it's true that, that you know, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so because we're all kind of that, we don't really call one another that, um, but this can easily get stretched into the 21st century. This is so easily applicable to today. Because even though the characters are not necessarily there, I mean, does spiritual entitlement still exist today? Yes. Have, has religious division within the family of God been mended? Not entirely. And are there still religious people who try to act like bouncers? Yeah. So if we want to be able to flip this to a Christian perspective in the 21st century, perhaps all we have to do is ask ourselves a question. Who is your Gentile? Who is on the outside? What identities do we use to divide God's people into those who are in, which will always include ourselves, and those who are out? Now, I kind of just thought about this for a minute and made a list. Now, this list I'll show you is not, uh, it's not everything. 
and it's also not prioritized. I just took 30 seconds from writing this message and just wrote down the first ones I thought of. Here we go. Racial identity, family identity, sexual identity, political identity, national identity, identity, denominational identity, and Protestant or Catholic identity. And what could you add to this list? I'm sure you could. This is not exhaustive. We could make this list a mile long of instances that we have seen or that we have experienced or maybe that we've even enacted ourselves. Identities that help to divide the the people of God and say that someone is in and someone is out. Now, it should be noted, these identities should not just be glossed over in human beings. We're all different. We all have different, you know, sub-identities of of who we are, and let's not pretend like that's not true and that we're all exactly the same. But sin, judgment, and prejudice creep in when we claim that any of these identities disqualify another person from the identity that God has for any person who makes a faith commitment to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, which is simply child of God. In the warning of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist and Jesus should not be forgotten. It shouldn't be deflected that life with God belongs to those who call Jesus Lord. For those who see Jesus and believe, who see Jesus for who he is in Scripture, that his death was in our place, was in your place, so that you would not have to endure the internal consequences of sin, that any person who makes that faith commitment, believes it in their heart, repents of sin, is birthed into new life and takes the identity of child of God. Now it's not to say. It, it, and, and which is, you know, you are not who you say you are. You're not who other people say you are. The only word that really matters here is God's word about you. And God's word says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are all capable of judgment. We'd all likely be found guilty of judgment by adding an asterisk to this word. By adding an asterisk to Everyone. Because the the spiritually entitled part of us, the little part that lives probably within all of us, is quite offended by this. Offended by everyone, if we really get down into it. Offended by the, by the, the scope of Jesus' grace for anyone, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. We are citizens by faith, of the kingdom of God, not bouncers. In God's kingdom, it's only the king who says who's in and who's out, not the citizens. But for those who have the humility to see themselves as God sees them, as, as sinners who are saved by grace, this is good news, and this is what Jesus came to say. Now, some of you, you've experienced the trauma of someone acting like a freelance bouncer of heaven. People who have, who have told you that because of this reason or that reason or this thing, that somehow the title, child of God, that somehow your faith commitment still isn't enough. That somehow God's grace kind of reached its, ran out of steam, rather, right before it got to you. 
to that person or those people, you've got to know it's not true. The only word that matters about you is God's word. And God's word says that every person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you call on that name and you make a faith commitment to Jesus and you love him because you believe that his, that his death covered over your death, then you are everyone. You are a child of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this grace. Thank you that while this grace can be at times offensive for us, that, it can, that we can struggle to, to really understand the, the scope of this grace, that we are saved by it and not by works. God, we're confronted with the opposing truth of the asterisks we place on Scripture. That perhaps not everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think maybe in our minds we're thinking of people, we're thinking of groups, we're thinking of those people, right? Those people who, who may not be covered in that way. But God, judgment is yours, not ours. Forgive us for when we do judge, when we try to sit on the throne where you sit. And try to make the judgments that only you can make because only you can see the heart of a person. God, forgive us for that. And thank you, Jesus, that by faith we are recipients of this radical grace that you bestow upon your children. Children who are born of a second birth. Not based upon which family we were born into, which side of the tracks we were born on, but God, an identity that was given to us by faith. So thank you for that identity. I pray that we would live into that identity as citizens of the kingdom and we would let you, we would let you do the judging and not us. God, help us to love all people no matter who they are and whether we agree with them or not. Help us to understand and fathom the scope of your love so that we, as Rosewood Church, but also the church, would be a reflection of the life to come. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for making Rosewood a part of your day. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.